Good morning. My name is Bill Smith. I'm one of the pastors here at Renewal Mainline, and I hope that you all have had a very Merry Christmas. And I hope also that you are able to continue enjoying your celebration over these next several days and uh, weeks. In our country, we try to cram all of the fun parts of the Christmas season into Advent. And so by the time we get to December 25th, we sort of have that holiday hangover. But historically, the church has celebrated Christ's birth beginning on December 25th and then extending for several days afterward. That's where we get the 12 days of Christmas from. And so I want to urge you, you're not going to be able to rekindle all the excitement of Christmas Day. But as you keep looking at the decorations that you have that other people have around their places over these next several days, let yourself remember why we have a Christmas day. And then just take a very brief moment and make sure you thank the Lord for having come and visited our planet. I also want to take a moment just to thank you for your love for me and for my family uh, during this time as we've been recovering from COVID. Thank you for texting, for emailing, for uh, praying, for offering to get us all kinds of things. We feel very, very loved. Uh, we, we are very, very loved. And just want to give you a real brief update. Given the medical advice that we've received, given the uh, CDC guidelines, uh, we are now able to have our one son leave the house, safely go back to work. I probably could have been at CoLab today, but out of an abundance of caution, decided, no, I'll stay home uh, and, and then hopefully can join the rest of the team next week. Sally and Dan should be able to um, be well enough to, to leave the house sometime in the middle of next week. Again, we're very grateful to the Lord for having uh, experienced a very mild form of this, and we're also very, very thankful for all of you and for your love for us. We are starting a new mini teaching series this morning. Uh, it's going to take us through most of January. And one of the blessings in disguise during this last uh, year, during the pandemic, is that as we are all isolated at home, we're discovering a reconnection with our families. I keep hearing that when I talk to a number of people. People don't have as many places to go and they need to rely on each other more. And what people are discovering is that after they get over the initial frictions, the frustrations of trying to make life work, uh, in this new setting, that people are actually enjoying being with each other. And that's a blessing in disguise. But I want to take a moment to think about what it took for that blessing to actually happen. The fact that we had to have a global plague that has shut down so much of what people uh, are used to in order for us to discover that we actually like each other and like being with each other. Now, why is that? It's in part because you and I live in a world that's exhausting. I was talking to a married couple just a couple weeks ago, and the wife was telling me, she's a medical doctor, she's a specialist, she was telling me, for 60 hours a week, I'm at work. I meet people, I ask questions, I problem solve, and then when I get home, I'm just worn out. I don't have anything to give to my husband or to our kids. Now we're expecting our third, and I don't want to miss out on the early ones, this, this one's early years, like I did with the other two. Now, what is she saying? She's saying, I'm tired. I'm exhausted. I can't do it all. I have limits, but I've been living my life as though I don't have limits. And what I've been doing is stealing from the most important relationships that I have. Can anybody uh, relate to her? One of the hallmarks of our age is busyness. We are people who, in the title of Kevin DeYoung's book, are crazy busy. We're people who live under the combined pressures of expectations 
and opportunities. And to manage our world of expectations and opportunities, we keep cramming more and more into our lives that are already very full. And so we live with expectations at work, expectations to produce more, to produce sooner, to produce better, so that we can move on to the next thing a little bit more quickly. And then we go home and we face expectations at home expectations from family and friends, expectations to provide, to provide physically, to provide emotionally, to provide socially. And because we know that we can always you know, sleep a little bit less or rush through something a little bit quicker, we keep packing more and more and more into worlds that are already incredibly busy. And then on top of that, we live in the Philadelphia suburbs where there are more opportunities good opportunities, more opportunities for you than you'll ever be able to take advantage of. There are places to go, things to do. There are activities for the kids. There are organizations and associations that you'd like to be part of. There are boards that you want to serve on, not to mention career opportunities. There are new responsibilities in your present position. There are new positions in your present company. There are new companies that would offer you a position, that have offered you a position. Opportunities that if you turn down, you wonder, is this ever going to come back again? If I say no again, will they just keep asking? Or is this one of those up or out kind of situations? I know I'm too busy now, but maybe at some point I won't be. And what will I do if I've closed all the doors for myself at that point? And so many of us keep the gerbil wheel spinning faster and faster. We talk about how we don't have any margin in our life, or we talk about the tyranny of the urgent. We feel tired. Many of us look tired. And when people ask how we're doing, many of us will say something about being tired. And there never feels like there's any break. So what do we do in this world? Well, we create breaks. We check out during the day by skimming the news. We play a game. We text a friend. We scroll through social media. But then we feel bad. We know that we should have been working. We don't feel like we've gotten enough done, so we don't stop working when we should. That eats then into the time when we should be doing something else, and we lose that boundary between work and rest. We end up oscillating between work and rest, and frankly, we do neither one really well. Now, into this swirling, chaotic busyness, busyness that we can't seem to stop, busyness that we have created, that we keep recreating, Jesus enters in and he says, come to me, all who are labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus promises rest, inner rest, rest for those who live on treadmills and gerbil wheels, rest for those who are heavy laden. He offers a way of life that will help restore a work-life balance, that will navigate the expectations and the opportunities that are just not going to go away. And Jesus offers that rest, and this is important. He offers that after having lived here on this earth after having experienced what it's like to be you, to be a finite human being who cannot possibly agree to all of the demands and all the offers that people put in front of you. Jesus knew exactly what that was like. He had expectations, expectations from his family, 
from his friends, from his disciples, from the religious leaders, from the thousands of people who were constantly wanting him to serve them. And they all wanted something different from him. They all offered countless opportunities, opportunities to serve, to heal, to teach, to lead, to grow his ministry, to influence. He lived under all the pressures that you and I do, and he experienced all of that. And then having that sum total of that experience, he says, there is a way of living here in this world where you can have rest and a light burden. Come to me for it. And in that moment, he's telling you, I know how to live it. I know how to give you rest. I know how to live a life of rest. And some of you right now are thinking, wait a minute, that, that can't be true. We're told that Jesus was often up early, that he worked really long days, that there were days when he was so exhausted that when he was sleeping in a boat that was in the middle of a storm, a storm that was so fierce that it terrified experienced sailors, that somehow he was able to just sleep through that. That doesn't sound like a guy who's mastered a work-life balance. There's a very important line in one of Jesus's prayers that modern people need to spend time meditating on. And as your pastor, I want to urge you, you need to find some time to meditate on this. This line comes out of John chapter 17, verse 4. Jesus is praying to his Father and he says, I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. It's a very important line. Meditate on this. Having accomplished the work that you gave me to do or as the NIV puts it, by finishing the work you gave me to do. Think about what Jesus is saying there. He's saying, I did everything, Father, that you gave me to do. Every last bit of it. I never went to bed with an unfinished to-do list. I never had a list of things that I had to catch up on. I never had someone that I was supposed to heal that I hadn't healed. I never had someone else that I needed to go visit. I never had someone I needed to go teach. There was never one more thing that I should have studied or one more village that I should have gone to. Instead, Father, I finished the work you gave me to do. He perfectly obeyed God in what God gave him to do and what God wanted him to accomplish on this earth, which if you think about it means that he didn't do less than what God wanted him to do and he didn't do more because if he did more, there would have been things that he had to have left undone. What does that mean? That means that Jesus knew how to work hard and he knew when to stop working. Jesus knew how to say no to things. Read the Gospels. You'll discover that there are a number of times where Jesus says no to people because he's aware that what they want from him is not what God wants from him. He knew how to work and he knew how to stop working. He knew how to rest, which really should not surprise us. As the Son of God, it makes sense that he would know how to rest because God himself knows how to rest. It's one of the early things that God tells us about himself. Go back to Genesis 1. You learn there a couple of different things about God. Number one, you learn that God knows how to work, that he is a God who works. God's not afraid of working. He likes working. We learn there that, work, that there's worth and value, dignity to work. Why? Because God himself is a worker. We also learn that God is a God who enjoys his work. He enjoys what he does. And so he takes time to pause, to look back on what he's made, to evaluate it. And his evaluation throughout all of Genesis 1 is that what he's made is good. 
that it's what he intended it to be when he started it, and that he likes what he's done. And he regularly does this evaluation. So he says, verse 10, after creating, it's good. A little while later, verse 12, he's made something else and he says, it's good. And so on throughout the chapter. Verses 18, 21, 25, it's good, it's good, it's good. Till he gets to the end, verse 31, and he says, it's very good. And then God does something that he hasn't done before. Chapter 2 he stops working. Verse 2, he rests. And you learn that as important as work is to God, as central as it is to his character, work is not his primary identity. He doesn't lose himself in his work. Instead, he's able to stop working. He's not a slave to some inner, out-of-control drivenness inside of him. He's not trying to give himself worth and value by what he does. He's not trying to compensate for some underlying insecurity about himself as a person. He is able to stop working, and he does that while retaining his identity as creator. He doesn't get his worth and value from working. It's actually the other way around. Work gets its worth and value from him. His making flows from who he is, and by implication, so does his resting. They are two different ways that God expresses himself in this physical world, two different but equally important ways. In other words, work and rest are not these antagonistic impulses inside of him that he's just sort of ping-ponging back and forth between. Rather, he can engage his world in both of these ways. He can engage his world, he can enjoy his world by working, by producing, by creating, but then just as legitimately, he can engage his world and enjoy it by resting. Now, why does God rest? Because he's tired, he's you know, worn out, needs a break? Realize, no, he tells us, verse 2, that he rests because he finished his work. The work that he had done, he rested because it was all done. Everything was now the way that he wanted it to be. Nothing else needed to be created in order for it to be what he wanted. And that helps us then understand something about rest. Rest is not the same as inactivity. We're going to spend a whole week on that later on in January. But rest is not inactivity. God is still active in his resting. He's still sustaining the world, still keeping it running. What he's doing in resting is he's no longer creating. He's resting from producing, resting from adding something new, resting from adding something of value to what he already made. And so rest is not the absence of work, nor is it just endless distraction, endless entertainment. Neither of those things are what it means to rest. Instead, rest is maybe different from the way that you're used to thinking about rest. Why would that be? We live in a fallen world. We live in a world that latches onto something that God has done, and we elevate that something above everything else. We think that that then is the most important part of creation, and we value it above all the other things in creation. That's what Scripture means by when it says idolatry. It's what Scripture means by taking something in this world and making an idol out of it so that everything else in our lives conforms to it or bows down to it. And we can do that in this world with anything, and we do it with both work and with rest. But when we do that, 
We no longer understand those things in the same way that God does. We don't do them the same kind of ways that he does. And so we don't understand what real work is or real rest. Some of us idolize work. We elevate it to this place where we bow down to it. It controls us and then we what? We become workaholics. We embrace busyness as a good in and of itself because it lets us work more and, and get our value from the things that we make. And so we don't really understand what work is because we don't work the way that God works. On the other hand, others of us idolize rest. We bow down to it and we become hedonists. And for those of us on this end, we detest busyness because it keeps us from losing ourselves in what other kind of pleasure, whatever kind of entertainment we really want. And we mistakenly equate endless relaxation with rest. But this kind of work and rest are caricatures of how God works and rests. So if we're going to escape the busyness of this fallen world, if we're going to learn to rest like God does, we have to understand what he means by resting. One of the best ways of understanding what he means is to look and see what his resting tells us about him. You remember that in this world, everything that happens, this world is a way of God expressing who he is. And so when he rests, we're learning things about him and about his nature. And to the extent that we understand those things about him, then we're going to be able to rest like he rests. So what does his resting tell us about him? First, it tells us that he has complete and total control over everything that he's made. You can't rest if you're afraid that someone's going to come along and undo what you've done. Okay, maybe you know what that's like. Maybe you have worked as a group uh, on a presentation for work, or you worked as a group on a school report. And when that happens, you can pour tons of time into that project, and you finally get it to where you're happy with it, but you can't rest. Why? Well, because you're working as a group. Probably you're working with, uh, by sharing a Google Doc. And so you click out, but you keep wondering, what are they doing? Are they changing things? And so you keep going back in to check to see what someone else has done and whether you like what they've done or not. You can't rest. Why? Because what you did, what you evaluated as good, can be undone. And when that happens, you might not think that it's as good. God doesn't have that problem. He doesn't have to be constantly vigilant. He doesn't have to be constantly busy. He can rest without worrying if what he's done is going to be undone. He can rest because he knows that it won't be. J.R.R. Tolkien put this idea into words in his book, The Silmarillion. The opening story pictures God in the process of creating, and he's also being challenged at that moment by Melkor. Melkor is one of the mightiest angels that God has created. And God gave to Melkor, along with all the rest of the angelic hosts, the opportunity to have a role in the process of creation. He invites them to sing creation into being based on the ideas and based on the gifts that God has given to each one of them. Melkor, however, is not content with the part that God gives to him. And so he adds his own ideas in for his own glory. Or, quote, he does so to increase the power and the glory of the part assigned to himself, unquote. But his ideas clash with what God 
has given to the rest of the angelic host. And by singing his own song, he takes the song that God had designed and throws the music into turmoil. He introduces chaos into creation. Now God steps in several times, overcomes the, the chaos, and he keeps weaving the chaos back into his own design, bending it to his own purposes. And he tells Melchor that this is the way that it has to be. He explains, quote, no theme may be played that has not its uttermost source in me, nor can any alter the music in my despite. For he that attempts this shall prove but my instrument in the devising of things more wonderful, which he himself has not imagined, unquote. Really important line there. No one can alter the music in God's despite. He is all-powerful over his creation. No one can undo what he has done. No one can threaten it. And because what God has made is not at risk ever from anyone, God can rest. Secondly, God can rest because he brings his purposes to completion in his world. Not only is God most powerful, but he knows what he wants to use his power for. He doesn't finish creation, sit down and go, oh man, I, I just remembered something that I wanted to do. Now, so now I have to go back and, and, and go and fix that. God doesn't do that. He doesn't endlessly churn inside, never able to rest. God doesn't wake up at three o'clock in the morning with a brand new idea and think, man, I, I, I wish I had thought to incorporate this before. It would have been so easy if I had done this earlier. And now I'm going to have to go and, and pull things apart. And re I wonder if it's going to be worth it all. God doesn't have those kinds of thoughts. He knows what he wants for his world when he creates it. And he keeps working at it, keeps creating until what? Until he's finished. And then he's done. And because he's finished, he can rest. No more tinkering, no more adjusting. It's good. It's good, it's good, it's good. It's very good. And it's so very good that God rests. He rests first because he has absolute power over his creation. He rests second because he completes the purposes that he has for it. And third, he rests because he takes pleasure in it. Rest comes on the heels of God's evaluation that as a total package, it's all very good. And so his rest carries a sense not only of appreciating what he did on any one day, but on appreciating the entirety of creation. God sits back and he takes it all in. And he shifts in that moment from enjoying creation for what he can do with it to enjoying creation for what it is. If you think about it, his enjoyment goes from being in a verb to a noun. His enjoyment is no longer based in activity, in creating, in a verb. But now his enjoyment is in a reality. It's a noun. He enjoys creation. He's no longer building a place where creatures will live, but he rests from that work in order to enter into that space that he's built in order to share it with his creatures, especially people who he's made in his image. He stops enjoying producing, stops that kind of working, stops creating because he wants to enjoy what he's made and to share it with his children. And so he rests from the creating activity. Now, what does that mean for you? You're part of creation. And since you are part of his creation, 
it means that you can also rest. God is not busy. And because God is not busy, you don't need to be busy. More than that, God doesn't need your busyness. It doesn't add to him, doesn't add to his worth or value. He doesn't need you to be busy so that he feels like he's a success. He's secure in himself. He doesn't need your constant activity to make him feel good about himself. He doesn't need your busyness for himself. And he doesn't need your busyness for what he's doing. You being hyper busy will not keep his world on track. It doesn't make his plans and purposes happen. It doesn't add valuable pieces to his world that otherwise would be lost. God's power and purposes are more than enough to make this world what he wants it to be without your constant activity. He doesn't need your busyness. And frankly, you don't need your busyness either. You can rest because God can rest. No one can do anything to you that will take him by surprise. He's all powerful. No one can undermine his goals and his plans for you. He will complete what he started in you. He delights in you, not because you are hyperproductive and you add to his world. He delights in you simply because you're his child. You're part of what he said was very good. Your busyness will not make you any more secure than you already are. It will not save you and it will not give you a better life. What it will do is make you miserable. It will keep you tired and exhausted because you are trying to do things that God's not given you to do. Things that will actually create a different world other than the one that God intended to be created. When you insist on busyness as a way of life, as a way of controlling your world, as a way of giving you the life that you want to have, as a way of get, making you feel worthwhile and valuable, that kind of world that you're trying to create has nothing to do with the one that God said was very good. You might end up accomplishing more. You might end up getting a whole lot more done. But if you're doing things that God has not given you to do, then those extra things are what? They're simply additional ways of rejecting God, additional ways of rejecting what God has planned. And the only thing that will do is keep you from sharing in the rest that he has for you. That's what rebellion against God's plans does. Israel experienced that. God saved them out of slavery in Egypt. He brought them into the wilderness and they hated his plans. They wanted a different set. They didn't want to fit into what God thought would be very good for them. And because they rejected his plans for them, he would not allow that generation to enter into the land that he had for them. The land that he gave a very special name to. He said, that is my rest for you. And so that generation wandered in the wilderness until they died off, until a different generation had grown up who would embrace God's plans for them. That faithless generation that died off became a cautionary tale for future generations. And it was a cautionary tale to teach us not to resist God and his purposes. You have a summary of this in Psalm 95 where you are urged, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness. That's a place where the Israelites did not want what God had for them. Do not harden your hearts when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray in their heart and they have not known my ways. 
Therefore I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. It's a really frightening warning. It puts a whole new spin on busyness. See, busyness is not simply that you're tired now because you live in a world that's exhausting. It's that you're tired because you've been hard-hearted. It's that you have rejected the world that God has created for you. You've demanded to live in a different one other than the one that he thinks is very good. You're trying to do things that he's not given you to do. Now, if that's the case, what hope do you have? What hope do you have if that's been you? What hope do you have if you live like the rest of us in the Northeast in the 21st century where busyness is just a way of life? Your hope is that Jesus has entered into your busyness and said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. Connect yourself to me. Be yoked to me. Stop working to save yourself. Stop working to give yourself meaning and purpose in life by trying to take on one more thing. Take my yoke upon you. Let me do the heavy lifting for you. It's what Jesus did on the cross. It's there that our restlessness was put to death. Our longing for something other than the world that God has made. Our longing for something other than the God who made it. It's there that Jesus worked and he worked and he worked and he worked. Not for himself, but for those who are yoked to him. For you and me. And he worked so that we would enter into his rest. It's there that he died the death you should have died, the death that should have kept you out of God's rest, the death that should have sent you to a restless eternity. He died that death for you so that you wouldn't have to. And because he's yoked to you, it's there on the cross that he trades with you. He gives you the benefit of the life that you should have lived, a life where he did everything God gave him to do, where he never hardened his heart, never tested God, never went astray. His only delight was to do what God gave him to do. He did everything that he needed to do in order to deserve entering into rest with God. And on the cross, what he, take, what he does is he takes what he is owed by God and he gives it to you if you're connected to him, yoked to him, so that now it's your right to rest to rest with God. Your hope is that what you have worked so hard to lose for yourself, he worked much harder to gain back for you. He did that so that you and God and he could rest forever together. So if you labor and are heavy laden this morning, if you're busy beyond belief, come to him and he will give you rest. He will forgive you for your restlessness and it'll give you rest for your soul. You can now rest because you have a God who rests and who re shares that rest with you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, please forgive me. Forgive my brothers, my sisters for not living a life within limits, for not embracing a life of both work and rest. Forgive us, Lord, for thinking that by working harder and by doing more that we are actually adding to our lives rather than taking away from them. And Lord, allow us then 
to come to you with our heaviness, with our, 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 our feeling labored and our feeling tired. And Lord God, refresh us, restore us, and give us rest for our souls. In Jesus' name, amen.